Hey there, Susan Davis here inside the U.S. Capitol. Before we get to the show, we want to urge you again to try out the NPR One app. Stories from your local station, your favorite podcasts, international news, it's all there. This month, Pop Culture Happy Hour, an NPR podcast a lot like this one, but about movies, books, TV, and music. It'll be available in NPR One a day earlier than anywhere else. So check it out. Find NPR One on your app store now. Okay, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. We've got a Democratic debate to go over from Thursday night. We'll spin through the latest delegate tallies from Colorado. 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 And Wyoming. Colorado. It can be either way. That state. <laughs> we'll do some listener mail. And as always, we will end the show with Can't Let It Go, where we all share a thing we cannot stop thinking about this week. Note, we do have ice cream again this episode, but it's not about Hillary and it doesn't have wine. Okay, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Scott Detrow. I'm in New York, where this week I've been covering the Republican candidates. So how's New York, Scott? It's great, but there's no ice cream here. <laughs> in the whole city? And I guess I can find it somewhere, but yeah. you know, we'll get Try into this little. later. This, okay. is, this is why I took a 6 a.m. train to be here in Washington today. <laughs> So before we get started, check out episodes from earlier this week. If you have not, they are good ones. Uh, we have a whole episode all about contested convention scenarios for the GOP. we got another episode all about the Anita Hill story, which is the subject of the new HBO movie Confirmation. And that is a story that NPR's Nina Totenberg broke. It was a really cool chat we had. I know that I learned a lot from that conversation. All right, let's get to it. First, Thursday night's debate. This was the ninth time these candidates have debated. You could say we didn't learn anything new about their positions. You could say this debate won't really change any minds at this point, but it was pretty lively. It was kind of nasty, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were. Uh, they they went at it, uh, and and they were sarcastic at times. And and I I have to say the volume was turned up to eleven. I have stood Wolf, on the debate Wolf, stage with Senator Sanders eight prior oh, times. Excuse me. I have Wolf, said the Secretary, exact same Senator, thing. Please. If the, we can the, raise it to Secretary, 15 in New York. Wolf Blitzer also yelling. <laughs> <laughs> it did feel like everyone was yelling at each other the entire time. I also think, and this has been my pet peeve this entire campaign, is I think that live studio audiences They're awful. just add an element to they these debates. They make it nasty that feed this like sportsman like sports show mentality of like reality show sports the cheering the booing I, f- I found it like at moments last night difficult to listen to them and even at that one point when wolf blitzer was like if you're both screaming at each other the viewers won't be able to hear either of you okay. so I please was, don't I talk over each other. yeah, yeah no, like, it was this. like the i'll turn this car right around moment for wolf blitzer because <laughs> they just wouldn't stop yelling and it's just like oh man i don't know and i have so, debate fatigue. and it's so weird because for a while the thinking was that these dim debates were nicer than the gop debates but did this one kind of finally get to that level you know they were tough on each other okay but they were not calling each other names. There was just like a lot of sarcasm. That That's what jumped out to me listening to the clips this morning. I was with the Republicans last night, but following up this morning, there was just like, especially from Sanders, just like a lot of sarcastic tone going on last night. So Bernie Sanders opened by questioning Clinton's judgment. This stems from that big debate about Sanders calling Clinton unqualified. We covered that in the podcast last week. Here's the tape from last night's debate. Does Secretary Clinton have the experience and the intelligence to be a president? Of course she does. But I do question, but I do question her judgment. I question a judgment which voted for the war in Iraq. 
the worst foreign policy blunder in the history of this country, voted for virtually every disastrous trade agreement, which cost us millions of decent-paying jobs. And I question her judgment about running super PACs, which are collecting tens of millions of dollars from special interests, including $15 million from Wall Street. I don't believe... And so that's going to be his campaign's argument from here on out, right? And it has been his campaign's yeah. argument. But, you know, there was a time when he was reluctant to attack her on the Wall Street speeches. Yes. That time has passed. Now, Secretary Clinton was busy giving speeches to Goldman Sachs for $225,000 a speech. So what speeches is he talking about? So the speeches are... Hillary Clinton, when she was done being Secretary of State and before she started running for president, did what a lot of politicians do, what a lot of Washington people do, which is when you're not in public life, you cash in. I mean, it is remarkable how much money people can get paid to give a speech. And we should say she, although she made something like $250,000 to give a speech to Goldman Sachs and some other, some other companies... Other politicians have actually been paid even more than that. What is like the upper limit? I don't know if we know that for sure, but for someone of her caliber, that is probably a fairly standard going rate. Um, President Bill Clinton, when he left office, a lot of the wealth they accumulated after he left office was on uh, giving speeches. Plus, when you're no longer in public office, you're not subject to any kind of ethics rules or things like that, where senators or members of Congress or presidents can't take that kind of money when you're in office. And so a lot of them, when they leave office, use that as a way to, quite honestly, just make a lot of money. And and we should say that Bernie Sanders doesn't have any $200,000 closed-door speeches because he can't. The ethics rules say you can't do that when you're uh, in office, and he's been in office for 26 yes. years. Now, we can also say odds are he's not going to, when he retires, go like give speeches to Goldman Sachs. Yes. But, now, but her defense, I would say, which is what she brought up in the debate last night, is like, I will do it if everybody else does it. There, there, are, certain, there are certain expectations when you run for president. This is a new one. And I've said, if everybody agrees to do it, because there are speeches for money on the other side, I know that. But I will tell you this. Because her point is, is, this is a very common practice. Now, that I'm not saying that makes it justifiable or yes. excusable, but her point is accurate that essentially, especially uh, former government officials of her level, Colin Powell has done it, Condoleezza Rice has done it, the speech-making industry is a very common practice. They all did that, though, but they weren't thinking about running for president when they were doing that. And I remember there was a lot of scrutiny and a lot of articles written about this when Hillary Clinton first left the State Department and started doing the speaking circuit, saying, is this a politically risky move for someone who might be running for president in a couple of years? Will she come under scrutiny for this? And now it's been kind of a consistent attack on her throughout the presidential campaign. And she was asked that question at an earlier debate. And she said at the time she did the speeches, she wasn't sure she's going to run for president. Now, some Clinton observers would roll their eyes at that comment and say, yes, of course, for president she... for the last 30 years. Exactly. So it, I don't know if she has much credibility in that defense, but she has said that. So she's her point is, I'll release him if everybody else does. I don't know if that's a very compelling yeah. argument to Democratic primary voters. So there was this moment last night when Bernie Sanders was kind of questioned about what influence those speeches and those fees might have had on her. Can you name one decision that she made as, as senator that shows that she favored banks because of the money she received? Sure. Sure. The obvious decision is when 
the greed and recklessness and illegal behavior of Wall Street brought this country into the worst economic downturn since the Great Recession. So, like, Great Depression fast forward a bit, he really couldn't name a specific instance. Does that hurt him and his argument on this issue? It seems like a pretty remarkable missed opportunity. He has been making this case throughout the campaign that she is somehow tainted by the money. And yet, when he was asked to say how she is tainted by the money, he didn't do it. But also, I mean, I think for people that believe in this message of Bernie Sanders, it's about the general spirit of corruption. Like this, like, like, like this, this, like, it's like penumbra. Just like, so, like the fact that, that the money is there, it just changes you, who you are, and, and like your character and the choices you, like, you can't put your finger on it, but you know something's up. Well, isn't right? that a lot of his, in his points last night? Because on a lot of the policy issues, they don't have a huge amount of daylight between them. But a lot of Bernie's point is like, you go to the 60 yard line, I'll go to the 100 yard line. Yeah. You know, that it's it's not that they have completely divergent yeah. policy disagreements. He's just saying he fights harder and for more progressive values well, and that one, she's hamstrung by that money. And at one point she said, we're in vigorous agreement here. You know, We are in vigorous agreement here, Senator. You're I so- think it's important to point out that, you know, we're, we're, we're having a discussion about the best way to raise money from wealthy people to extend the Social Security Trust Fund. Think about what the other side wants to do. They're calling Social Security. And there is a lot of vigorous agreement. I think that the minimum wage is a perfect example of the differences that come out throughout the debate, that have come out throughout the campaign between them. Bernie Sanders supports a $15 national minimum wage. He's a big proponent of the fight for 15, which has a nice alliteration to it. Because all over this country, people are standing up and they're saying 12 is not good enough. We need $15 an hour. Hillary Clinton says she supports the fight for 15, but that if she were president, she would advocate for a $12 national minimum wage. I want to get something done, and I think Setting the goal to get to 12 is the way to go, encouraging others to get to 15. But of course, if we have a Democratic Congress, we will go to 15. But she feels like, you know, upstate New York or Iowa or other places where the cost of living is lower, a $12 minimum wage is more politically practical than a $15 minimum and wage. Lots of, and there are Democrats that fall on both sides of of that, right? And economists. Yeah. But it really comes down to a incrementalism versus yeah. shoot for the moon. Yeah. Although, and then we saw that a lot last night too. If 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 Sanders's meta argument is she has bad judgment, her other counter argument is he has wonderful ideas and absolutely no way to execute any of them. It's easy. It's easy to diagnose the problem. It's harder to do something about the problem. Thank you, Secretary. We'll continue on this. So all this audio is courtesy of CNN. Uh, And also last night, there was some debate about whether or not Bernie Sanders was attacking the current president. Make make no mistake about it. This is uh, not just an attack on me. It's an attack on President Obama. President Obama. What was he talking about? I think at that time, taking money from Wall Street firms. I mean, uh, there, there were any number of times yeah. that, that on energy, on foreign policy, on any number of issues last night, it came down to, I trusted President Obama's judgment on this, and you don't trust the president, and trying to create, make it seem like Bernie Sanders was as opposed to Barack Obama as he is Hillary Clinton. It was like she was using President Obama as a shield. What voter does that affect? 
What Democratic voter does that message get to? A big D Democratic voter. Okay. Certainly black voters. Uh, I would say older black voters. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But if you look at President Obama's favorability ratings among Democrats, yes. all Democrats, it's, it's, high. Very, it's very, high. very, very high. So making it sound like you are a, a skeptic or a critic or an opponent of the president is not a bad strategic move on Hillary Clinton's part. I don't know if people believe it, yeah. but you can see why she's doing it. But for an independent voter coming to vote for Bernie for the first time? Well, guess they who's not voting in New York? Exactly. Independent voters yeah. cannot vote in New yeah. York. It's a closed primary. This is actually a pretty potentially significant problem for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I also believe that the congressional district that gave President Obama the most votes is in New York. I believe it is um, Jose Serrano's district. He won like 90% of the vote in his district. So, well, that is a super Democratic district, which we'll be yeah. talking about in a little bit. Oh, good. More right. on Jose Serrano's district soon. Excellent. <laughs> we'll be right back after this break. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to say that there were some policy contrasts last night as well on a no-fly zone in Syria, which Clinton supports and Sanders does not, uh, as you mentioned, Tam, on wage hikes, um, on clean energy and the use of fracking around the world, and also on the conflict in the Middle East. Right, Tam? Yeah. uh, When it comes to Israel and the Palestinians, Bernie Sanders took a position that is pretty far to the left. I mean, he took a position that Israel at times has overreacted to attacks. the The question is not does Israel have a right to respond, not does Israel have a right to go after terrorists and destroy terrorism. That's not the debate. Was their response disproportionate? I believe that it was. You have not answered that. Well, I will be. And then Hillary Clinton was asked if she agreed with Sanders. And rather than responding directly to that question, she started started talking about, well, when I was in the room and there were just four of us and we were negotiating the last peace in Israel, I yeah. mean, she, she played the Secretary of State you know, card pretty, pretty hard. That's a card. <laughs> so what should we expect from these campaigns uh, in the New York primary on Tuesday? It's a closed primary, as you've said. I mean, what I've noticed this week is Bernie Sanders with these massive, massive crowds in New York City. Like, he had 27,000 people in Washington Square Park this week. You were there, Tamara. I was there. It was, a, as Bernie would say, a huge crowd. Uh, there are estimates that there were many more thousands of people that weren't in the park. Uh, there were people in office buildings surrounding the park, standing at the windows for that whole time watching the rally. It was a very energized group of people. When they walked away, I, I talked to people and they were just like, I mean, it was just palpable. They were so excited that, yeah. you know, many of these people have been waiting in line to get into this evening rally since 11 o'clock in wow. the morning. Wow. Now, how many of those folks can vote for Bernie? There's some rules that complicate this, right, Susan? Right, well, that's the closed primary thing. If you've not registered to vote in the correct party, you won't be able to cast a ballot on Tuesday. Um, obviously, Hillary Clinton is heavily advantaged in New York. She was a senator from New York. She was elected statewide twice. She has led in every single poll of New York uh, in this contest. She has an average of a 10-point lead in all of these contests. That being said, we have had similar conversations like About this Michigan. before, yeah, right. where Bernie Sanders was far behind Clinton in primary states and in polls, and he has had a really strong showing. Uh, I think the question is to his organization, did he f- identify enough of these voters and make sure they were registered and make sure they're going to show up on time? I think it's fair to say that if Bernie Sanders wins New York, it would be the biggest changer. upset of the Democratic nomination fight so far and would deeply unsettle our conventional wisdom that Hillary Clinton is still yeah. 
the front runner for the nomination and very favored, although she still mathematically will remain favored, but it will unsettle the ground she walks on if she loses New York. Yeah. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Republicans who were also in New York this week. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital. Combining free online financial tools that provide unprecedented transparency with personal attention from dedicated financial advisors. The result is a complete transformation in the way you understand, manage, and grow your net worth. On the web at personalcapital.com politics. Hey there, I'm Sarah McCammon in New York City, where I'm on the campaign trail following the Trump campaign. If you're looking for a new podcast to try, check out How to Do Everything. It's a survival guide for all of life's trials and tribulations, like bear attacks, romantic conundrums, and romantic bear attacks. There's a chance you'll find it helpful, but if not, you'll definitely enjoy hearing about other people's problems. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. All right, we're back. What has the GOP been up to this week, Scott? Well, they've been hanging out in New York, and that is really Donald Trump's home turf. I'm looking at the the Real Clear Politics average of polls, and it's a cartoonish 30-point lead for Donald Trump right now. And spending the week in New York City particularly, talking to Republicans there, you can really feel that. Uh, So last night, all the Republican candidates went to the Hyatt, this big hotel right next to Grand Central Station, for this big uh, Republican Party dinner. It was kind of funny because, you know, this entire campaign, everyone's been railing against the establishment. And here they all were in a Manhattan ballroom where the crowd was all wearing tuxedos, paying $1,000 each to be there. It doesn't really get more establishment than that, right? Were they, Uh, like, smoking cigars made out of $100 bills or something also? There there were fine brandies being drunk, and you're walking around the cocktail hour because, you know, it's New York Republicans. So they're a little bit more media-friendly, and, of course, like, shockingly, the reporters could mingle on the cocktail hour. Hmm. Um, And it looked like one of those parties that, like, in in movies, like, you know, like, the Joker or some other, like, Batman villain breaks up and, like... (laughs) But uh, it was interesting because Donald Trump showed up and was just like beloved. And he just dove into all of these like really granular New York City development issues. He was talking about huh. restoring uh, Woolman Rink in Central Park and and talking about he, he had actually bought the hotel they were in at one point and restored it. He was making like jokes about street intersections and how he wishes that hotel was on Park Avenue, but it's on 42nd Street. But he could say it was on Park Avenue because any like stuff that like this crowd was loving. And then uh, John Kasich and Ted Cruz get up and talk and and, you know, basically you could hear like the clinking of silverware and people talking over them. And it's just like, oh, you're here, too. okay. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Ted Cruz is just not that popular here. Uh, I'm working on a story about that heavily Democratic district, the 15th and the Bronx, where uh, the the ratio of Democrats to Republicans is nineteen to one. Oh my goodness! And I, and I just looked it up, and yeah, Barack Obama won about ninety seven percent of the vote there in twenty twelve. Did wow. Ted Cruz go there? Did, he did go there. Why would he and go it there? did not work well for Ted Cruz. He got booed. He got heckled. So there are Republicans in the district, and I met them and hung out with them. They even had a meeting that I went to. With what, like three people? There were about 20 people there. So I talked to a sizable chunk of the Bronx Republican electorate. (laughs) Like a third of it. (laughs) Yeah. I did meet one Ted Cruz supporter in the Bronx, and she was almost apologetic about it. She was like, yeah, I like him. But yeah, I mean, he needs suits that fit. 
<laughs> and I wish you would talk about God a little less, you know. Well, that's my question for you, Scott. Like, what is what is a Bronx Republican? Um, there are a lot of uh, working class white folks who live in kind of the, the far east side of the Bronx or the northern edge of the Bronx where it's a lot more residential and kind of blue collar. Um, is it uh, like a fiscal conservatism more than a like a, a social conservatism? Like we've talked so much about evangelicals in the yeah. South. I mean, what's a... Yeah, I talked to a guy named Mike Rendino, who's the vice chair of the Bronx Republican Party. And more importantly for me, he manages the bar right across the street from Yankee Stadium. <laughs> so I went and interviewed him there and I told him, you know, this is the most clear headed I'd been in this bar. I'd spent like hours and hours of my life there. But uh, I, was, I was, you know, <laughs> it was empty. We were having a conversation. I wasn't screaming. But uh, he said one thing he likes about Trump is that he focuses on kind of blue collar values, populist issues. And he said, look, I'm Catholic. I have conservative views on, on social issues. And in fact, this guy once worked for Rick Santorum. But he said a lot of New York Republicans, he said there's kind of a separation of church and state. And they don't need uh, their Republican candidates to talk about gay marriage and, and, and other social issues as much. They're happy to have someone like Donald Trump who is kind of liberal on a lot of those issues, or at least was for most of his adult life before he started running for president as a Republican. But they're excited that he's talking about kind of the, those bigger picture fiscal issues. It's so interesting because I feel like we've just heard the term New York values so much in the lead up yeah. to this race. And in both parties, I mean, it came up in the Democratic debate. It's come up a lot in the Republican uh, side of the, and I think it came up at their event last night too, and sort of defining what New York values is and how like the two parties have had such a different take on that and who's trying to like best uh, I don't know hold the flame of New York values I would think Donald Trump has a pretty good advantage there right and he spoke directly to that last night I want to just talk just for a second about New York values the firefighters and first responders and the police officers and the Port Authority workers who ran up those stairs those are New York values, and those are New Yorker values. And, uh, and Ted Cruz, of course, tried to attack Donald Trump uh, around the Iowa point in this race by talking about his New York values. Cruz has been desperately trying to walk that back as he's tried to campaign <laughs> for work. New York. Hasn't worked so well. Hasn't Didn't think he so needed well. to win New York at that point. Yeah. 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 So, Scott, you spent a lot of time looking for folks in the GOP in the Bronx. Why were you looking for them? Because they're basically super voters. They uh, they have the power of like dozens and dozens of people in other districts. That's because New York divides up the bulk of its delegates by congressional district. Oh. If you uh, if you win a congressional district, you get two delegates. If you get more than fifty percent of the vote there, you get all three. That means that people in this district in the Bronx, the one that's nineteen to one Democrat to Republican. They're going to have a huge say over three delegates, which could be a big deal because yeah. Donald Trump's margin of error is so small to get the clinch delegates that he needs to to avoid a floor fight. So in that district, guess how many Republicans voted in the 2012 primary? I don't know. Tell me. 285. <laughs> oh, my that's God. That's unbelievable. So that's a good uh, that's good use of your money and time. If you can swing like a dozen votes there, you know, you can you can have the impact of winning thousands of votes somewhere else. Huh. Let's also talk about uh, a lot of back and forth this week over the GOP primary system itself and whether it's fair or not. So Donald Trump this week has been all over Twitter and, and in his speeches, too. Right, Scott? Like he's been complaining that the Colorado system for assigning delegates is completely unfair and totally not OK. 
Um, and and he has just been he's been making a lot of noise about this. So, so the thing that we kind of forget is that not every state holds a primary or caucus. You know, that's something that state parties have the option to do. And Colorado made a decision to not have a binding caucus or primary and instead elected its delegates to the convention through this state convention process. So I was there in Colorado Springs last week. There were thousands of Republican activists who showed up and voted for delegates on a statewide level and on a congressional district level. And Ted Cruz wiped the floor with Donald Trump in terms of organizing for this. Uh, The Cruz campaign has been courting delegate candidates since December And that's far before we thought that Colorado might still play a pivotal role in this at all. Yeah. So just to clarify, Colorado didn't have a primary. It didn't have a caucus. It had some sort of a convention in a big arena with hundreds of people giving 10 second speeches running for delegate seats. It's like the it's totally weird. 10 second speeches. They were amazing. What do you Um, say in a 10 second speech? They were amazing. Uh, Some people just said. Well, people said the weirdest things. Uh, my favorite one was a guy walked up and he holds up his uh, phone to the microphone and plays like an alien sound, like, no, no, no. And he goes, that's the mothership calling Donald Trump. Vote Ted Cruz. And just walked off. Conventions uh, are also not an unusual thing. States like Utah use conventions to nominate their candidates. So, like, let's not pretend that it's like, oh, what is this thing? It's a long-established practice. It's on usually, the Republican side. It's on the Republican side, and it's often used by parties to pick their candidates. Now, it's unusual, but it's an option, and states use it. Um, Donald Trump also had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal complaining about uh, Colorado and the system. So I feel like I have to, like, take my earrings out and, like, put my hair back when I start talking about this stuff. (laughs) Um, One, I think when you're complaining about the rules, you only do that when you're losing or you don't like them. You know, like, you never hear anybody else talking about this. Two, all of these states decided how they would elect their candidates a long time ago. They're all fully disclosed. The process is completely learnable if you choose to learn it. Three, Donald Trump has the worst ground game of any candidate who has waged a serious race for president this year. He is one in large part on sheer popularity and populism and a groundswell of support, but he hasn't done the due diligence. And what his campaign is doing is laying a groundwork by which they can challenge these huh. de- delegates ahead of the convention. Because huh. there is an appeal system within the RNC that you can challenge delegates that were selected in these processes to say whether they're legitimate or not. So I think starting to draw these lines about Colorado and other states is going to give him some ground when they get to Cleveland in July. And I think that he will have an argument that he can make, which will be a very intuitive argument to regular folks that hey, I won more popular votes than anybody. I won more states than anybody. How in the world are you going to deny me this just because somebody else, you know, played the system? And also, like, I kind of think it's valid. I think it's fair to say Colorado is crazy. Sam, if you were running for president, though, wouldn't you read the rules beforehand? You know, granted, but... I don't think that Trump has a losing argument when he says some of this stuff is whack. But let's also remember that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are private institutions. They get to make their own rules. Totally understood. But I could see a lot of voters all throughout America saying this just doesn't feel right. Yeah. But you know what else? I mean, it's the same as in November. It's not by popular vote either. It's by the Electoral College, which is, you know... We're more familiar with it, so it seems a little less weird, but that's just as counterintuitive. Like, you know, it doesn't really matter how many popular votes you get. And so are caucuses. Caucuses are counterintuitive. But I'm just saying, I get it when someone says this is crazy and it's weird, because I think it's crazy and it's weird. (laughs) I just do. (laughs) Anyway, 
We should also talk about Paul Ryan, who is maybe or maybe not going to run for president. <laughs> I don't know. What's up with that, Susan? He is not running for president. Are you sure? I'm sure. I'm going to ask you again. Are you sure? I'm sure. Okay, why? But is uh, he really sure? Yes. <laughs> uh, so Paul Ryan, who was elected speaker last November to much attention, uh, there has been, I would say, the equivalent of a whisper campaign, right? Like inside the Beltway. And it, I think it's if a, it, it's like a stage whisper, though. It's the kind of whisper you can hear from the back of the room. I think Paul Ryan might maybe run yes. for president. And it is largely fueled. In, it's an inside the Beltway conversation. It is very, very much fueled by the, the wing of the party that is terrified at the idea of Donald Trump being the nominee. Or Ted Cruz. Or Ted Cruz. And think that a guy like Paul Ryan is who, when we, you know, who would have thought a year and a half ago, yeah. uh, a year and a half ago would have wanted someone like Paul Ryan to be the nominee right now. And so the conversation has persisted much to Paul Ryan's frustration. Uh, and so he was out of the country for two weeks uh, on a trip as speaker to Israel. And he came back and his staff was like, you need to like publicly come <laughs> out and say, if you don't shut it down, it's not going to stop. So he had a press conference at the Republican National Committee this week to give uh, a Sherman-esque statement about not being the nominee. We have too much work to do in the House to allow this speculation to swirl or to have my motivations questioned. So let me be clear. I do not want, nor will I accept the nomination for our party. Also, you know, I think it's important to remember that he can still run for president under like cleaner, better terms. And if he were to somehow go down this path, he would have to be he's very risk averse. So he would have to be very certain that not only does he win the nomination, but he could win in November, because if you win the nomination ugly and then you lose your, his political career is over. So he's also just not that much of a risk taker and has a very long political career ahead of him. OK, we're taking a break. Break number two. We'll be right back with some listener mail and can't let it go. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, AMC's Turn, Washington Spies. It's 1778, and there's only one fate that awaits a captured spy, the hangman's noose. This season builds towards one of the most notorious moments in American history, the treasonous defection of Benedict Arnold. The price for treason is blood, and not all of our heroes will survive. All new season returns April 25th, Mondays at 10, 9 central on AMC. All right, before we get to some mail, I want to talk really quickly about something on the podcast last week that some of you wrote us about. I was describing the new law in North Carolina that restricts restroom use to the gender listed on your birth certificate, but I messed up. I said that it restricts men to men's restrooms and women to women's restrooms. But of course, to people in the trans community, this law prevents men from using men's restrooms and women from using women's restrooms. To talk about it another way, suggest that trans people are being deceptive when they're just being true to who they are. This was one of those times when my mouth was moving a bit faster than my brain. In the process, I said something that offended people in the trans community, and I'm very sorry about that. Thank you for writing us about it and for caring enough to keep us honest and for helping us to understand this issue a bit better. Um, all right, let's answer some questions. We got this one from an eighth grader in Salt Lake City named Ian. Ian wrote, quote, I had a question regarding Donald Trump's claim that if elected president, he would attempt to pass laws allowing him to sue news outlets that publish untrue or negative content, and whether or not this would be unconstitutional. Thank you for creating such a great show, Ian. So, I mean, my first take on this is that the president can't pass a law by himself, right? That, that is, is correct. true. Okay. <laughs> Very good, Sam. <laughs> 
That's all I got. <laughs> I'm just a bill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would need a president like Trump who would like to change those laws. You would need a Congress that would probably have to be controlled by his own party and super majorities in both because it's there's a lot of conservatives that don't share that view uh, as well as liberals. And then you would need a court system that would uphold it all the way through because obviously any challenge to a constitutional right would have to work its way through the Supreme Court. And then you would need a Supreme Court that would be willing to side against the First Amendment, which as history and precedent has proven the court across the ideological spectrum has been very strong in defense of the First Amendment. So in theory, it is possible that you could change the law, but in reality, it would be almost impossible. In We're theory, safe. I have a six-pack, but it's under all these fat rolls. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ian, basically not very likely. And, Ian, our colleague Brian Naylor did a whole story on this uh, for NPR, so if you want to hear more about it, you can Google it. Thanks, Ian. All right, we have a letter from a listener in Amsterdam who wrote us. I don't want to say your name wrong, friend. I'm just going to spell it. J-O-E-P. He wrote, as with many of my fellow Dutchmen, I follow American elections more closely than our own. Wow. Thanks for that. Didn't know that. We are entertainment the world around. Yeah. He wrote, there's one thing I don't understand. Why do presidential candidates have these long on-topic interviews with editorial boards of large newspapers? They seem like high-risk, low-payoff interviews. What's in it for them? One word. One word. Endorsement. But do those endorsements even matter anymore? Like, I've... What voter says, oh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal endorsed X, I'm going to vote for X? Well, historically, newspaper endorsements used to carry a lot more weight with them. Uh, but long before the era of TV and the modern campaign, uh, newspaper barons and their endorsements mattered a lot. That influence has waned over the years. But I do think particularly in certain states, uh, places like De- Iowa with the Des Moines Register and New Hampshire with the union leader, the union leader um, have also been historically very influential papers and very well read by the voters. So it's a way to kiss the ring of local institutions and also editorial boards, unlike newspapers, they can be biased. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is well known for having a conservative editorial board. Uh, the Union Leader has a conservative editorial board. So in some the ways... The New York Times has a pretty liberal editorial board. The New York Times board. has a liberal board. Um, so in some ways, uh, candidates pick and choose based on the philosophical views of the editorial board because it doesn't always have to be a high risk. Some Sometimes it's a safe space. And but as a like journalist, it- as a journalist, I'm pretty grateful that these things exist because often these are interviews that are more in depth. They're they're able to press the candidates in ways that as regular trail reporters, we get very little access to the candidates. We, I mean, I watched a Hillary Clinton editorial board interview with the Des Moines Register that lasted 90 minutes. They web streamed it and you learn things. In ways that, you know, a 20-minute cable interview, you don't learn things. But as our friend in Amsterdam wrote, these can be low payoff. I mean, thinking back to that Bernie Sanders interview with the New York Daily News. It was the New York Daily News. um, That did did not help him. Neither did uh, Donald Trump's with the Washington Post. A lot of kind of like gaff moments came from that. And that's where the I think that's where the NATO thing first came out, where Trump was questioning NATO. And that was like a storyline he was batting back for, for a couple weeks. Also, shout out to Max. He wrote us to say that he listens while hiking volcanoes in Guatemala, where he lives and works teaching English and music classes in rural villages. Um, and I listen on the bus. What I have you done uh, with your life? Can I have your life, Max? 
Yeah, what, what, what? Max is doing something right. I gotta rethink like, some choices yeah. after me. Like, like one week life swap? That'd be great. Uh, what's up, Max? He also asked this. Can you take a little time to talk about each candidate's likely first choice for running mate and what that individual would bring to their ticket if they were to win the nomination? I got nothing on this one. This is like the the most quintessential Washington parlor game. Yeah, is guess who the running mate might be? Well, maybe we, you can say the names that have come up the most. Well, we yeah, can, yeah. we can say so. Donald Trump has talked about this, and he is when he's been asked the running mate question, he has said he would pick someone that has governing experience, and he has name checked Marco Rubio, John Kasich as a potential vice presidential nominee, someone along those lines. Although we should say that a lot of the people that Donald Trump has name checked have taken themselves out of consideration and said, I would, Scott Walker was another current Wisconsin governor, former candidate Scott Walker, and Whenever someone's name checked, they say, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so we know that we at least know that about Donald Trump, that he's leaning someone who's been a governor or a senator or has, has some kind of governing experience. For Hillary Clinton, this is tough. Well, yeah. For a while, well, I think it was the one name. Julian Castro, yeah. former mayor of San Antonio, now the secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. HUD. Yeah. And then Tom Perez. Yeah, he's the labor secretary. And those are just a couple of the names. There's a very long list of names. There's nothing to say she wouldn't nominate another woman. And I don't know who Bernie Sanders would nominate. I know a lot of people would love more than anything if he nominated Elizabeth Warren. You know, presidents do tend to look at vice presidents as making up for deficiencies they have on their own right. Uh, Why Barack Obama chose Joe Biden in a lot of ways was his foreign policy experience, which Obama did not have. George W. Bush chose Dick Cheney for largely the same reason. So when you look at a candidate like Bernie Sanders, I think maybe that's one area you'd look at as someone who would have more foreign policy experience, which is something that Sanders lacks. But who that is? Question marks. Okay. Thanks for the questions. All right. Five second break. We'll be right back with Can't Let It Go. All right, it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. We took that quick break here because, like last week, we had to get some ice cream up in this situation. Last week, I brought us some wine ice cream, which has a whole backstory from the inventor about how Hillary Clinton made the idea for wine ice cream at a White House event years ago. This ice cream today also has a story, Tamara. Yes, it does. What is the story of this ice cream? Well, let me get it out of the bag here. I'm taping this section of the podcast under protest since I'm in New York without the ice cream. We'll save you some, Just chain yourself to a chair, Scott. (laughs) All right, here it is. Vermont's finest. Okay. Senator. Ben's best. Bernie's yearning. I have a pint of... This is not Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It's just Ben's. This is ice cream made by Ben and Jerry. However, Ben and Jerry's is a company that does not endorse candidates. Uh, but this is, and it's it's actually an autographed pint of ice cream. By Ben or by Bernie? By Ben. Okay. And just a big shout out to Ed Erickson, who works with Ben and Jerry, uh, who gave us this pint that comes from the friends and family batch. Um there, there are like less than 100 of these, and Ed gave us his pint. Look at that. I actually spoke to Ben and asked him about the flavor and the inspiration, and I, I think we have a little tape of that. What happened was that Jerry and I were going around on the campaign trail, campaigning for Bernie, and every time somebody would ask, all right, well, what's the Ben and Jerry's Bernie flavor? 
one morning I woke up with this idea. It would essentially be mint chocolate chip ice cream, except somehow or other, all the chips had risen to the top. The chocolate, of course, represents all the wealth uh, created over the last 10 years that's gone to the 0.1%. So the way you eat it is you take your soup spoon and you whack the big chocolate disc into a bunch of little pieces and then you mix it around into the ice cream to get the chocolate back where it's supposed to be. Oh, and he redistributes the chips. And you redistribute. And there you have it, Bernie's yearning. And it and that is really Bernie's yearning. So this is Jerry. Can I add something? Ben has created the recipes for some of the most beloved and famous ice creams in the history of the world. <laughs> Fish food chocolate chip cookie dough, and yet Bernie's yearning is the pinnacle of Ben's work in the ice cream world. <laughs> so on the back, and it has um, a picture of Bernie Sanders on the yeah. pint. On the top and the side. We are extremely lucky. The only other pint of this ice cream to be eaten in a broadcast medium was by Bernie Sanders himself on The View. Huh. We're so we're part company. of the, the ice cream elite? Yeah. All right, I want to taste we're it. We're in the 1% Quit of yapping. ice cream. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> Give us the ice cream. So I'm going to follow the instructions here that say take the back of a spoon and whack huge the huge chocolate disc into lots of pieces. Here we go. The back. The back. Oh, like that. Oh, jeez. Oh, got it. <laughs> this is too hard. Mm. We'll yeah. pass it around while, while he's talking. Okay. Um, okay, so Scott in New York without ice cream. <laughs> without ice cream. What you not let go this week? can't let go of my lack of ice cream, but I will find the nearest Ben & Jerry's store. Okay. Um, so I know we do a lot of cross-promotion of our podcast. This is not part of that. This is just me saying I cannot let go of the podcast that you did with Nina Totenberg talking about the Clarence Thomas hearings and the fact that she broke that story. That was just a really great show. She's a legend. And, like, talking with her this week, you just kind of, like, have to remind yourself, like, I get to work in the same office as she does, and that is a pretty good feeling. All right, Scott, go write your – Scott's on deadline right now, y'all, so he's going to leave and write a story for <laughs> On deadline, considered. without ice cream. Yeah, you know? and, and, and really, Scott, we don't need you because we want to eat our ice cream in peace. Just enjoy, guys. No, enjoy. Bye, Scott. Peace out. See you, guys. Thanks. Okay, who's next? Sue, what can you not let go this week? Okay, my can't let it go might be more of a you can't make it up this week. Uh, this morning in New York, six people came out against Donald Trump. Those six people are former contestants of the NBC hit show The Apprentice. What? So in a twist of hilarious Donald fate, posted. Donald Trump's former, the former host of that show, his former contestants are saying, you're fired. <laughs> Except for Amarosa, who I saw being a, a surrogate for him as, this weekend. As with most Americans, contestants on the apprentice, former contestants on the apprentice are also divided <laughs> yeah. over who to vote for this year. Uh, the six candidates who came out against for the for the apprentice fans listening that came out against Trump were Kevin Allen, Tara Dowdle, Marshawn Evans Daniels, James Sun, and Kwame Jackson. Wait, who? did Kwame win the first one? He was. Yeah. He was, Kwame uh, was really good. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so they came out and they said that they questioned Kwame Jackson said Trump does not have the right temperament to be president president and accused him of appealing to, quote, the lowest common denominator of fear, racism, divisiveness of our populace. But none of the celebrity apprentices. No. And if, in fact, uh, two of the most well-known celebrity apprentices, Piers Morgan and Omarosa, are uh, supporters of Trump and have spoken very favorably and say that he thinks he's going to win the nomination and has a good chance to win in the fall. But it's just too funny. 
Pierce Morgan was on The Apprentice? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he was on a Celebrity Apprentice. Oh. The, the, the spinoff season. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try this ice cream now. Um, I got to get the chocolate in there with the ice cream. Right? Yeah, we have to redistribute the chocolate. Okay. I mean, the consistency of it's it, it feels very velvety. I like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's it a very feels creamy. good. And you know why the mouthfeel is like this? It's because the three different mints uh, ha- are in some sort of an alcohol solution, and it um, it lowered the freezing temperature huh. because there was so much alcohol? alcohol, and so it made it more creamy. Maybe that's so. Why this I is like alcoholic. It. No, it's not like that kind oh, of alcohol. Okay. I well. I'll find out. <laughs> when you make ice cream, sometimes it helps if you put a tablespoon of vodka in it to that for that reason, it just so it doesn't ice up as much. Sure, for that reason. Listen to it on my podcast. <laughs> Sue explaining <laughs> Sue stuff. Talks about stuff. And <laughs> Sam, while I eat my ice cream, what can you not let go of? So this week, I I got to do a really fun story about advice for candidates running for office on how to deal with being protested or heckled at a campaign event. And I was talking with our movie critic, Bob Mondello, about the story idea. And he was like, you know who's always heckled all the time and always has to have a strategy to deal with it? A comic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I talked to two great comics this week about what they would do. One, Phoebe Robinson is the host of a really great new podcast on comedy called Two Dope Queens. And I was like, what can a presidential candidate do when they're being heckled. And she's like, some of our strategies could work for them, but also they couldn't because they have to be kind of serious. I just don't think a president can roast somebody. Nah. I think that looks like opposite of presidential. Like, it does. Yeah, you can't like do the dozens on someone and then be like, all right, I'm going to go like talk to Putin. And it's like, what? You can't do both. I also talked to Lori Kilmartin. She was on Last Comic Standing and now writes for Conan's show. Mm-hmm. And she basically said, part of what you have to do when you're being heckled is to get the audience to join you in disapproval of that person. The best thing I found is to let them ruin your show a little bit. So the audience gets very aggravated and like, Oh, will will she just do something about this guy? And then when you do, when, then when you do slam them, they are cheering and they're completely behind you. Anyways, I want more feedback on this. So listeners, if you have ideas or tips or pointers for candidates being heckled, tweet me. Better security. Yeah, better security. <laughs> All right, so I, I just want to chime back in now that I've eaten some of this ice cream. I am a mint chip partisan. Like, if I am choosing ice cream at the store... That's it? That's it. <laughs> and, and and I have to say, I appreciate that this is not some crazy lime green color. Yeah. Mm. It doesn't look Agreed. artificial. Agreed. And the chocolate is delicious if yep. you let it melt in your mouth. Anyway, ice cream. That's a wrap. Before we go... April 9th was our six-month anniversary of doing this podcast. Aw. Snaps. I'm taking some time out right now to thank all the folks that have been involved in making this thing happen. Um, first and foremost, our producer, Brent Bachman. Yes. And we saved you some ice cream. Also, our editors on the desk, Mathoni Maturi, Shirley Henry, and Beth Donovan. They make this podcast possible every week. To Barbara Sprunt, our fact checker. It's also her birthday today. Shout out to Barbara. And also to the kind folks at NPR One, Viet Lee and Sarah Saracen. They really helped us get this thing off the ground with some beta testing months ago. And if you don't have NPR One in your life, you need it. Um, all right. And thanks to you guys for listening to us talk for the last six months. I can't tell you how fun it's been. Six months to go. Uh, all right. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. Uh, We'll be back next week on the NPR Politics Podcast.